When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush. Charles W. Chuck Bryant here in the L.A. Hollywood studio. Uh, You guys, I just got to sit down for, geez, maybe a couple of hours with one of my heroes, uh, Mr. Scott Aukerman. Uh, This was a very big deal for me. I was uh, one of the few that I've gone into a little bit nervous, but we actually talked for a bit before we recorded, uh, which really helped. And I, I, I came to learn very quickly that he's a great dude. And super nice and uh, and just a, a sweet, sweet guy. And we uh, got to sit here and talk about uh, he let me go for a really long time, <laughs> uh, much longer than he said he had time for. Uh, we talked about music, which was great. Uh, we got to talk about his great podcast, Are You Talking uh, U2 to Me? Are You Talking R.E.M. Remy? That he does with Adam Scott that you all know that I'm obsessed with. Uh, we got to talk about our similar backgrounds growing up as uh, as Baptist boys and uh, the beginnings of his career with uh, Mr. Show, uh, one of my um, early, early big comedy influences for me back in the day. And uh, and he was just the best guy. We got to talk about all the things that I wanted to cover, including his movie crush, the classic perfect film from 1960 uh, from writer and director Billy Wilder, The Apartment. Uh, with Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine and Fred McMurray. It was great. Couldn't have gone any better. Uh, Big thanks to Scott for coming on. And here we go with Scott Aukerman on The Apartment. It's remarkably consistent. Um, You know, Josh and I have the advantage of 
not having to book guests mm-hmm. and uh, kind of just like we're on autopilot at this point. We've got it so down. It's I wish I could get there. Very, very natural. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that is crazy. So you started in April of... April 30, 19, or 2009. Yeah. I mean, that was literally when we started. Yeah. Uh, crazy. And, you know, the landscape back then was a lot yeah, different. Nothing. We're very lucky. I feel very fortunate. Yeah. To get in that early. Because it's so weird. I feel like numbers, like how we get numbers are due to just being around so long for whatever reason. In I know. A way, you know. I feel that way too. Like sometimes I wonder how many of people of the actual numbers we get are listening but they i know they are because they they we track them and they press play and they, right but it used to just be subscriptions and that's how your numbers were but i don't know it's so crazy yeah i, I bet you guys get a little bit of what we get too which is people like we'll get emails from people that say you know i listened for six years mm-hmm. and then just went away for a couple of years yeah and now i'm back and um like, it's so cool that you're still doing the same thing, and I've caught up with all the older episodes. I feel like I, I'm like comedy is very important to people when they're young, I feel like. Uh-huh. And then people get families and they start having less time, and comedy gets less important to them. So yeah. I, I think that my show is a little more like, and that's why I try to keep it current with like current comedians rather than just going back to the same well of people from 10 right. years ago. But it's like, I feel like it burns bright in people's. Uh-huh. loves for a, for two or three years or something like that. And then they go away and new people come in, you know? But yeah, that's know. true. Uh, and I'm sure you also get some of these emails that totally freak you out. Like I started listening when I was uh, 10 mm-hmm. and, I, you know, I just got my master's. Right. And you yeah. guys were with me the whole time. <laughs> like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so weird. Such a weird uh, thing that we fell into. <laughs> I know. Well, but you, I mean, I truly fell into it in that I had no previous experience in entertainment. Right. Other than, you know, working as a PA right. on film sets, on TV commercials out here. Right. <laughs> uh, but you you were already well established. Yeah. I mean, I was doing I was doing my show as a hobby while I was writing mm-hmm. because I, you know, I, I worked on, I, I started out as a comedian. Um, here in LA and I was performing a lot. Right. Um, and I was performing, you know, several times a week and this is like mid nineties. This is mid nineties. Uh-huh. I started in 95, July of 95. And so, um, until I started working on Mr. Show, which was 97 mm-hmm. or 98, maybe, uh, 97, um, eight. All right. <laughs> um, but I, I was performing a lot, you know, and then I got on Mr. Show and, um, those guys very nicely because they knew I was a performer said, Hey, um, you know, you're going to be writing for us. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be writing for yourself. So don't write yourself into sketches. Don't, you know, I mean, we, we hired you because we like your voice, but this is writing for us. I feel like I took that and being like, always wanting to be the A student. I was like, all right, I'm not performing anymore. Uh (laughs) And, but you were on the show some, they were very nicely. Like, let me be on the show a lot. Um, but I didn't expect it. I was like, oh, these guys don't like me as a performer or don't want me, me to perform. Well, I'm just going to be a writer. Right. Um, and then I, I had co-written this uh, spec movie, uh, this movie on spec that got very, very popular and got close to being made several times. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of segued into being just a writer and never performed really all that much anymore. 
And um, even when I started doing my live show at first at the M Bar and then the UCB Theater here in LA, uh, Comedy Death Ray, I would just produce it and I wouldn't even like perform on it all that much. Oh, really? Maybe once a month. Maybe, huh. you know, it wasn't like, say, the Meltdown show with Kamel and Jonah where they were the yeah. hosts every week. Right. It truly was. I wanted to make it the best show every week that it could be. Mm-hmm. And I was like, with me as a host, it's not going to be the best it can be. Like, I was tired of shows in L.A. where the hosts would, you know, force themselves to be on the show. Right. And be the dead spot that people were like, oh, okay, Uh this person again. Every week we have to listen to this guy. (laughs) So I I had pretty much like not really performed at all for a while, um, but I missed it. And so I was sort of doing stand-up every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I started doing the podcast because... I was kind of irregularly doing characters on uh, the morning show at this local radio station, mm-hmm. uh, Indy 1031. I was calling in and doing uh, my most popular character was uh, the guy who plays Spider-Man out in front of the Man's Chinese Theater. I, oh, for, right. I forget what my name was, but I would do American <laughs> Idol recaps every, yeah. every time. I would do Robin Williams and all this kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And they just like gave me my own show. And said, hey, you know a lot of comedians and you're always calling in and doing the characters. Why don't you yeah. do your own show? So it became like a a, a, um, a a hobby where I was like, oh, I get to perform again. And, right. And I was doing it for free. Mm-hmm. They weren't paying me. Um, and we turned that into the podcast. And um, it just, you know, I, I started to see how popular podcasts were compared to people listening to radio. Yeah. You know. And so it it really was just something, you know, like my career is sort of filled with all these things that I did just for fun Uh that then turned into the main thing that I do, which is like really kind of strange. Between Two Ferns was that way. Um, So great. uh, Bang Bang, the REM show, Uh you know, like (laughs) we thought no one would listen to that. Yeah. Um, The U2 show. So like all this stuff that I did, it was just like, hey, here's a dumb idea that no one will give a shit about. Right. (laughs) Let's just do it. And then that became like the main thing. Do you feel like, and I was talking uh, just for the listeners with Scott about, I'm obsessed and I've talked a lot on the show about the REM show. Oh, really? And Thank you. And just being obsessed with it. But uh, you were telling me before the show, you don't recommend it to anyone. No. I, well, I reckon, <laughs> like, REM was, and you two were, were my guys as well. Yeah. And especially- Are we going, the same age-ish? i March 71. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, I, well, I'm 29, but, um, so I guess we're a little off, but, uh, and we had similar upbringings too with, uh, that's was, a joke by the way. I know <laughs> <laughs> you, you gave me a look of confusion, which is not how people usually react no, to that, jokes. That was, uh, I, I didn't get it till a second later. <laughs> uh, the, uh, I grew up Baptist in a, uh, so in, did I, in yeah. a Southern Baptist house in Georgia. Mm. Um, I and was I, born in Georgia, but moved to California. Yeah. Savannah. Yeah. So you have, uh, obviously you left very quickly, right? Yeah, like six weeks after I was born. Have you ever been back? Uh, we filmed the Mr. Show movie in Atlanta. And um, and then I've been to Atlanta a couple of times. Gotcha. But not tour. Savannah? Not Savannah, no. Uh, maybe during the Mr. Show movie? I can't remember. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I think from listening to the R.E.M. show, uh, your parents were a little more uh, strict yeah. than mine. Uh, mine weren't necessarily mm. permissive. They were just obsessed with disliking each other. So I was sort of as the third. <laughs> that took up all their focus. <laughs> Basically, I was the third child, so I was kind of under the radar. But, uh, you know, Southern Baptist upbringing is um, that that I, I later sort of did a full 180 on. Uh, yeah. So I know 
that you can identify with that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, it was something that I think from age 13 through 20 even, I was still sort of wrestling with it a mm-hmm. little bit, you know, of... For sure. Um, you know, I remember going to camp when I was 13 or 14 and I, I had a girlfriend and we were you know, sort of like, you know, exploring sure. everything, you uh-huh. know, and kind of like praying really hard, like, yeah. please, <laughs> oh, yeah. shouldn't, shouldn't I be a better person or I something? Know. Yeah. And just all the way through like 20 when I, uh, I lived at home until I was 20 and then I moved away to go to school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to go to church, uh, once or twice a week. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Wednesday night would be the one until I was 18. But once I was 18, it was only Sunday morning, Sunday night. Okay. So, and then at, at a certain point, just Sunday morning. And then at a certain point, I also was like staying at a friend's house on Saturday night. So right. I wouldn't have to go to, you know, Sunday morning. Were you in the other stuff like uh, FCA or Young Life or any of those? It like, was called Boys Brigade is okay. what I was in. <laughs> I've <laughs> so heard of that one. Maybe similar to what you're talking about. Just sort of like, school affiliated Christian oh, school groups. Affi- yeah. No, not school affiliated. Okay. No. But yeah, it was, and I was singing in church yeah. on Sunday mornings I was and in the stuff choir. like that. Yeah, <laughs> until until I moved out, and so it was kind of one of those things where I was like, I think all these ideas are really interesting, and mm-hmm. I would talk to the the youth pastors. We would go to lunch sometimes, yeah. and I would talk about stuff, and they'd go, "Oh wow, you have a really interesting take on this," you right? Know? But at a certain point, I was just like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I think that kind of happened for me in college. I took a religion class where mm-hmm. we studied. I think Judaism, Buddhism, and um, maybe Islam. I can't remember the third mm. one. Or maybe it was Christianity. And that's when I was like, oh, wait a minute. These are sort of all the same story. How could that be? Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, I don't know. The more you poke holes in it, I yeah. don't know. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. But hey, right. I also am of the opinion, really with anything in the world, like if you if it makes you feel better, great. Yeah. You know, so I don't yeah, come yeah, down yeah. on people who I'm not one of those atheists who's like, oh, you're so stupid if you no. believe in God. You know, I just, same here. That's just pointless. Even even some things that are probably harmful, like Scientology or whatever, mm-hmm. or even Mormonism. I'm just like, you know what? Let people have whatever they can cling to in order right. to make themselves feel better about yeah. life. Although if it's crossing over and not harming other people, I mean, that's how I sort of feel like, like uh, about a lot of old people who get into Fox News or uh-huh, whatever. It's right. like, guys. <laughs> that <laughs> like, religion. That Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, Where was I going, though, with the REM thing? Yeah. I can't remember. Well, we, you, uh, you, uh, you, you were talking uh, well, about not, Georgia. Not recommending it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Going to college at, when REM was, you know, 89 to 95 is when I was in Athens. Yeah. Told you I played on the softball team with Mike Mills. Yeah. Uh, Stipe was around. How Stipe, was he as a player? Uh, he was okay. How are you as a player? Uh, I was good enough. Mm-hmm. You Sounds know. like your team was dynamite. I mean, it was... <laughs> one okay guy, it was, one good enough guy. <laughs> it was bar softball, bar league oh, softball, yeah. so it was pretty low stakes. Mm-hmm. He was, I remember he was uh, very competitive and took it a little more seriously than the rest of us did. Interesting. And okay. I ended up hanging out with him one night about five years ago. Um, Eugene Merman came through town, who's a friend, and he uh, invited everyone out. Mike Mills was one of them, and... I, I reminded him. I had a good time, but I reminded him about the, the softball years. Oh, he... He so did not remember me. He did not remember you. Oh, no. interesting. Did he know who you were from what you do or... No, no, no. Okay. No. Interesting. He, he knew nothing of me, but he was a nice guy. Interesting. 
Yeah. Why would he not remember you if you were on the same team? I don't know, man. It was two full seasons. Two seasons, yeah. too. <laughs> I, it is tough when you meet so many people. Like, yeah, I'm When sure. your life becomes, as mine and Mike Mills have, right? just incredible. <laughs> <laughs> no, when you, especially if you're working on a lot of different things, like I'm sure, yeah. and going and traveling to a lot of different cities, it just like yeah. it sort of becomes a blur where you see someone and go, absolutely, who is that person? And then you look it up and go, oh, wow, for six months we were right. in constant contact. <laughs> yeah, once a week. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, those were my guys in college. And, um, so when I started listening to the show, it's, it was the perfect mix for me of like legit REM stuff, which I love. And Adam Scott is just super fan. Yeah. And the dynamic between you guys is just so fun with, with him taking it so seriously. And I you mean, we of, set out to make a serious show. That's what's so strange come about on, it. Really? We did the very first episode of U2, because the REM show originated as a show about U2, we went into it expecting to just literally super fan it and uh-huh. not do anything funny. <laughs> and then I, I got to for- go back and hear those. I forget what happened, but somewhere within the first two minutes of the first episode, yeah. we started making jokes <laughs> right. and it just became what it, what it is, is yeah. if you get us in a room together, we're just going to make those I'm jokes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, re- it's just great. Renaming everyone and uh, the, 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 uh, the way you guys get in and out of the the sub episodes of you know are we talking you know, is this an episode of Isla Films or whatever, right. and I think the way, and that's part of why it works is doing it the same every time, like how quickly you get in and out of those bits, how one of you will say, oh it sounds like a it might be, right. and then right afterward how you know good up good right up, up good up yep it's uh it's it's like this becomes this comforting thing somehow yeah it's it's interesting because I uh, when we came back with the REM version I think. I mean, we all, we both are constantly trying to figure out new angles, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But at the same time, some people were sort of like, oh, the R- the first episode of R.E.M. is a little fan servicey of like doing the same thing that we'd done in the U2 episode. And I, I kind of, I don't know where I land on that. It's like, you can't just do totally new things. I yeah. essentially, although I started out as a comedian, I am, you know, growing up, in LA and listening to a lot of LA radio, I became mm-hmm. very fascinated with DJs and like broadcasting, you know, and, and yeah. Letterman started as a broadcaster and I was always, he, he was a hero of mine and I always thought that was very interesting. So I always paid a lot of attention to broadcasting and a, and a lot of what he would do and a, a lot of what broadcasters do is you fit into a format and mm-hmm. you sort of, you hit the same things yeah. all the time and that becomes comforting, mm-hmm. you know, and to, to break out of that, as a comedian is also something that you're striving to do as a comedian. So right. it's like, I feel like the REM show is, is a push and pull between us doing what we know works and uh-huh. then trying to get into weirder avenues yeah. as well that are new. But yeah. Yeah. And uh, well, you handle it very much like a DJ with the intros. Yeah. I mean, it sounds very much like, uh, like a sort of morning, not, not morning DJ necessarily, but, but yeah, sort I, of the classic DJ sound. I think that it is, it is interesting because, well, first of all, my voice whenever I'm on a podcast and I'm I'm doing a voice right now, sort of, but essentially I, in a conversation with me, I probably mumble more than, than when I'm on a show. Right. And I think when I started doing a podcast, uh, Comedy Bang Bang, some, some of my friends were a little like, oh, is this your radio voice? And I'm like, no, I'm just trying to enunciate so right. that... 
I can be understood. So, uh-huh. like, I, as you can tell, I'm using my hands a lot, yeah, so, which yeah. I don't do in conversation all that much, uh-huh. you know, unless I get very animated about a topic. Right. But um, on the radio, just you need to make sure that people are understanding you. So I think it's yeah. a little bit of that. But, yeah, I, I, you know, having the podcast company Earwolf, it was a little – I, I grew up – being fascinated with broadcasting. So I sort of know all of those signposts that you have to hit of Mm -hmm. like introducing things right Right. at the top and hyping things that are coming up Mm -hmm. and then how to go to a break and come back from it and all that kind of stuff that comedians in general don't really know how to do. So that was a big challenge with a lot of our early shows, you know, is, is training them of like Mm -hmm. how much information you have to give. So people aren't listening going like, what am I even listening to? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real skill. It's amazing how many people I've had on this show that are professionals that I've had to say, like, you know, you got to get on the mic a little more. Right. They'll just start talking like this and go out. <laughs> it drives like, no, no, me no. insane. Like, it happens <laughs> all the time on my show. People will be like back here kind of doing yeah. this. And I'll go, you, are, you have headphones on. I you know. can tell no one can hear it's you. It's so weird. Yeah. It's very strange. Um, I was on the flight from Sketchfest on the way down here today listening to the show. And I'm, I'm sure you don't, because you guys recorded it. Like a while ago, I'm sure. Which one? The REM stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. We did last year or something like that. Yeah. I'm sure you don't remember all the bits, but I (laughs) rewound and had people staring at me for 10 minutes. Uh, It was when you did the the mini episode on uh, Kissing Styles. And, and you went, no idea. (laughs) It was just the best because Adams was just like, and then you did this like... 25 second uh horrible noise horrible noises of uh i don't even know what you were doing or how you're doing it but it was just fucking fantastic thank you i i it i don't know if you have the same experience but i don't recall a lot of uh of anything that i ever talk about i I, I totally get it and i didn't want to be the guy that's like oh remember that one bit when you did rochester and it was so funny rochester is someone that i would like to bring back it's pretty great there's a little there's a little tony clifton in him but, Rochester? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Rochester? Wait, you're from Rochester? No, my name's Rochester. <laughs> so fucking good. Do you guys, I mean, I'm sure you just get in there and wing it, or are you actually... We mainly wing it. The one thing that I would say we do on an REM show... Well, okay, Comedy Bang Bang and REM are very different. Comedy Bang Bang, I totally wing. Uh-huh. Uh, all I oh, ask, really? Yeah, all I ask from the people is, what's your name and what's your occupation? Right. Um... But for REM, we maybe will say, hey, the first segment is us just talking. And uh-huh. then second segment, let's talk about the record. And then the third segment, we'll oh, do sure. such and such. But that's it. Yeah. Right, everything right, else right. is just winging it. Okay. That's what yeah. I thought. It's great. Thank you. It's really the best. I can't wait to get into the U2 side. And I would love to hear a Smiths season three. I would love to do a Smiths, uh, one of my favorite bands. Yeah. But... Uh, yeah, who knows? I don't think Adam's ever listened to him. Trying to break what? through Adam's uh, very narrow That's interesting. Uh, scope of what he listens to is really the only hard part of uh, doing a sequel. Well, one of the things I appreciate about you with music, too, is um, I don't think you're narrow, but you're very specific with what you like and you don't like. Mm. Um, I guess, Arian, the perfect example is is basically getting to a point where you stopped yeah. listening to the new stuff. I was so into them and I love their early records so much that I, they changed their style so much Mm -hmm. 
which is fine. I used to have, a, I think I tweeted this once about how bands that change their style totally should have to change their names. Uh. <laughs> um, you know, so Weezer should have to call themselves something else. Yeah, yeah. And, or YouTube, especially. YouTube. Um, um, but I, I've sort of, it's interesting because I, I heard a song from Up the other day. That's the episode I'm on now. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I, it was a Why Not Smile. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I landed on it on the actual episode, but I remember thinking that Up was just an exhausting record to listen to. Yeah. Right? Um, but I heard that song and I was like, wow, this is really good. And I don't remember if I liked it on that episode right. or not. But um, I, I, there was a certain point with R.E.M. where they changed their style so much mm-hmm. that I just didn't think it was what I liked out of R.E.M. anymore. Yeah. Um, it happens with everything, with podcasts and everything. People will go yeah. like, oh, you're doing this new thing now and mm-hmm. it's not hitting the same sort of like, you know, uh, 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 thing in my brain, which is releasing yeah. the, sure, there's something the pleasure science. stimulus, yeah. you know, it's just not doing it for me. And that's why I like the show. I think it's perfectly valid on its own, but mm-hmm. I wasn't willing to, to go there, uh, with them. And, yeah. and now I'm more appreciative of it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think even, um, uh, and of course, I'm just now getting to the up episode. You can even tell that Adam is, he's finding ways to like it rather yeah. than putting on Life's Rich Pageant and you don't have to do anything but like turn your ears on. But I also truly think that Adam, because he likes a more narrow scope of music, mm-hmm. I think he he devoted the time to these records. Yeah. You know, so he knows them backwards and forwards right. because he listened to them so many times. And yeah. I, when I'm doing a, uh, a REM episode or a, or a U2 episode, I tend to do a lot of homework. That's the worst part about it is Adam knows all these things so much right. that he never has to do homework. He just uh-huh. like rolls into the studio and can right. talk at length <laughs> about these records yeah. and he knows all the facts. Yeah, I do a lot of homework and I usually would listen to the records at least... 10 times in various oh, wow. that week uh-huh. in various situations blasting on my loudspeakers yeah. in the car I would just try to listen to it in various types of situations That's a lot. um and but but I'm also just not appreciating it the way that he does mm-hmm. you know so I think I think that he he has a more nuanced understanding of the records than I do yeah yeah what was your um because I think we kind of also had a similar entree into, lack of a better word, alternative music, mm-hmm. which was eighth gradish, in excess, and the Cure and the Smiths and. Mine was probably. Like, a what was your later. entree? I mine because I was really into Huey Lewis and the News. Well, I was too. Yeah, <laughs> through. Through even eighty five. I mean, yeah. through, I mean, Back to the Future is one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, but. I would say that I was so fucking stoked when Huey Lewis was doing the the theme to that. Oh, yeah. And the fact that he's in the movie. Oh, and it was amazing. And that was just hitting all my sweet spots. Mm-hmm. So through through 85, I think I was, I was still kind of into pop music, and I listened to Kiss FM pretty much, mm-hmm. uh, which is a local radio station, which is like Top 40, basically. Right. But so, Top 40 back then was really good. That's the thing is like... F- you know, real people who really like alternative music. Yeah. I, when I started to get into alternative music, I threw away all my supposed, you know, pop records. Right. I was like, these are, these are bad. I'm into alternative music, but it was all like Huey Lewis and the News, uh-huh. The Cars. Oh, fucking like, incredible. Incredible records yeah. that I'm, th- and uh, Hall and Oates and yeah, stuff like that. Man. I'm like, get these out of here. It's all great. 
So I, I became way less snobby about music. But my my entree was, I think, Smith's Hatful of Hollow, probably. Oh, really? I think I maybe Pretty in Pink. Uh, is that where I first heard? It must have been where I first heard Please, Please, Please. Yeah. Or maybe I got Hatful of Hollow first. But that came out in 85, right? So. Well, my entry uh, to the Smiths was The Queen is Dead. So I was a little that later. That would be 86. And yeah. I was a kid at church, gave mm-hmm. me the cassette. He gave me that and he gave me Who's Do. Candy Apple Gray. Okay. And I had to kind of go backwards for both those bands. Yeah. I was I had a I had a best friend. Uh that that was really what it was. It was my sophomore year. I had a best friend who we hung out together all the time and he was really into alternative music. Uh-huh. So we had Smith's posters, The Smiths, The Alarm, uh and um REM. Yeah. Those were like the three that I can sort of tie back to him. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Where yeah. I, I, I don't think I would have listened to them without him. So, uh, and I also had a different best friend. I, I guess I had two best friends, but um, one was drama and one was regular school. Uh-huh. But he was really into X and OMD and, mm-hmm. and all these things. So I, it was pretty much those two guys, I think, who really introduced me into things. But the Smiths really was yeah. like, I, I, he was really cool. And I saw the Smiths poster on his record and it was from the first record. Yeah, yeah. And so when I found Hatful of Hollow at Tower Records in um, on Beach Boulevard, um, it was five ninety nine, and it mm-hmm. was a double record. And I was like, "This is a fucking steal!" <laughs> yeah, totally. And so I got it and just wore that record out. Yeah. And and around that time, K Rock, um, I started being able to get the signal mm-hmm. on on uh, because I had like a, a, a FM AM FM hi fi with a record player and a tape cassette, right? And I could finally get the signal for like FM wow. stations. You know what I mean? And so funny to think about those days. And so back in '85. K Rock was playing like Prince mm-hmm. next to, you know, all of these great alternative bands that I grew up with. Um, yeah. But that's that's really where my alternative love sort of started, you know. And then I yeah. just went in deep and pushed. I was like all in on it. And then around twenty, I was like rebuying all of my pop records. Right. Well, it's interesting though because I was uh, for me it was Casey Kasem every Sunday mm-hmm. after church listening to the American Top Forty. Um, and then MTV was mm-hmm. hit me like a freight train, especially as a little Baptist kid. Yeah, I was glued to it. And when you look back at those early days of MTV, I didn't know you're wearing an MTV shirt right now. I know. Uh, <laughs> I, I wore this. Uh, the head of iHeart is uh, Bob Pittman, who started MTV. So I brought it out here to, to suck up to him a little bit. Okay, great. But I had the chance to tell him when I met him in person. I was like, Mr. Pittman. I was like, I was, I was your kid. I was Did that he have guy. Anything to do with it back in the early days? No, he founded MTV. He founded it. Oh, yeah, okay. he started yeah, I, read, MTV. I read the book, but I don't recall all the details. Yeah. So. I didn't know it at the time, but you know, if you're watching MTV in those days, you're watching like the Talking Heads, yeah, and you're watching um, Billy Idol, Duran Duran, yeah, all this yeah. stuff that ended up being kind of the entree into alternative. You just didn't really yeah. know it at the time. I will say that in '83, I had a girlfriend that um, the one I was praying about um, right. when I was 13, who was really into all. She was really into X. And I would sit there, I would, I would watch like video one over at her house, mm-hmm. which was the Richard Blade hosted like local video oh. MTV show. Yeah, Cause we didn't, we didn't have cable. I, I didn't have cable till I was like 12 or 13. Okay. I didn't have it till I was 15 and uh-huh. 85. So in order to see MTV, I had to go over to a friend's house. Yeah. 
So video one or Friday night videos on NBC, those mm-hmm. were the ones that you could see all these videos for. But Friday night videos is a little more commercial. So yeah. it was like Phil Collins and stuff like that. Right. Whereas video one was alternative. So mm-hmm. it was like, you know, hazy fantasy, talking heads, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that was really, I think, Oingo Boingo, Oingo Boingo. That yeah. was, those were the first bands, uh, alternative bands where I was like, oh, this is really interesting and weird. And, yeah. she, and my girlfriend really likes them. She was also into Springsteen, which I, at the time, could never really uh-huh. figure out because um, she was basically, I think she was into whatever Robert Hilburn at the LA Times wrote uh-huh. about, you know, right. which is another like Adam Scott uh, mainstay. He yeah, would always yeah. read Robert Hilburn reviews. But yeah. it was like whatever he talked about, she was into. Um, but yeah, I think I think so. I think eighty between eighty three and eighty five, I was sort of figuring it out, and then eighty from eighty five on, I was like yeah. totally into it. Where I was like, anything commercial sucks. Yeah, it's cool to go through because I started out on like uh, Billy Joel. Mm-hmm. And was just a fanatic as a kid. And that's the first time I ever drove a car was to a Billy Joel concert when I was 16. And oh, wow. there were many years where, like, you had to keep that quiet. Uh, but yeah. then you age back into, like, well, especially who cares? Well, especially you were 16 and 86 or? Yeah. Yeah, I mean. 87, uh-huh. 87? I mean, that was when he was, it's like Stormfront. Really bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a one, a two, a one, two, three, four. It's like the least cool count count in yeah. to any song in history, probably. Yeah, those were bad Billy Joel years. Yeah. Um, a lot of reverb. Yeah. And have, also. Have was, you gotten to the Stained Glass 2 episode, by the way? Uh No. I would say don't listen to that, but go backwards and listen okay. to Stained Glass 1. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because and Stained Glass, Glass 1 is, that's Todd Glass. Uh-huh. That's Stained Glass 1 is in the U2 section. All right. You, those really need to be listened to is subsequently. It, is there a Billy Joel thread in there? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I will spoil no more of it for you, but when you get to that episode, just, they're, they're not connected to REM or, or U2. Yeah. Go, uh, tangentially they are, but go backwards, listen uh-huh. to Stained Glass 1 first, and then right. listen to Stained Glass 2. Well, but you could have such a disparate taste back then. Like, my first concert ever was Cheap Trick. Worship those guys. Awesome. But I was also listening to Billy Joel, and because I was from the South, I had this, um, looking back, these rednecks in the youth group that, you know, I was listening to fucking Alabama. Right. And stuff like that. And Hank Williams Jr., Mm-hmm. And uh, Leonard Skinner, or well, I have a brother-in-law uh, who dated my sister at the time uh, from high school on, and he was giving me. Wait, he's a brother-in-law. Oh, so he yeah he, he started dating, dating my sister in high school. Yeah, okay. Um, so he was feeding me <laughs> I had a brother-in-law who date, was dating my sister at the time. <laughs> Very weird Wait, is that how you become a brother-in-law? <laughs> um, but he was feeding me a steady diet of Leonard Skinner and okay. Allman Brothers and Blackfoot and Atlanta Rhythm Section. Oh, cool. And all this stuff that I still love, all that stuff. The thing I truly left in the rearview mirror was like Alabama and Hank yeah, Williams Jr. Yeah, I, I guess I haven't really. I went back and did a real Southern rock deep dive uh-huh. a few years back and started to get really into it. But Alabama is something that I haven't really. No, crossed I mean over you're a California kid, so. Yeah. I, I, but I, I will say that I, my brother. And I just argued about music all the time. And uh-huh. he was into heavy metal and, and Rush and Prague and stuff like that. And right. I, I think, and it's stuff that I like now. I, I think, I wish I had been a little more open to it back then where mm-hmm. I was, where I could be a little more like, oh, that's cool. And I remember him like showing me Rush albums and showing me all the intricacies of it. Yeah. And me just going like, oh, this is stupid. Right. And now I think it's cool. You yeah, know? yeah. So I don't know. I think, I think. 
now I'm sort of a person who's just like I can find good in kind mm-hmm. of almost any style of music and I yeah when I throw on iTunes basically I have like 250,000 songs in my iTunes uh-huh. or something I just put it on shuffle and you it's know probably like, pretty crazy yeah just you know lounge stuff coming up next to yeah you know subhumans and you right know. and then so, there's Elliot Smith and yes. then uh, Motley Crue Elliot maybe Smith not. I saw in a little tiny uh, like a bookstore here oh, wow. in LA before anyone knew who he was because I was dating a girl who was like, oh, I think you'd like this guy, Elliot Smith. And yeah. I went in and saw like th- with 30 people, him just with an acoustic guitar. And I was like, then he became my favorite. I was like telling everyone, yeah. Elliot Smith, Elliot Smith. God, he was the best. I, yeah. I was, um, when I lived out here, it was when he put out um, Figure Eight and I lived right around the corner from the, you know, the building oh, yeah. of the album cover. And I was like, oh my God. And I, I saw him a few times with the band, but I got to see one acoustic show at uh, Spaceland uh, where I got to see that like quintessential yeah. Elliot Smith on a stool. Uh, it was just fantastic. That's great. Yeah. Unfortunately, I also saw the other quintessential Elliot Smith on a stool where he was too uh, high to do a show. Really? Yeah. yeah. Those, were, those were so depressing. Yeah. I've seen a couple of people too high to do a show and it's just who else uh, i know we're not supposed to talk about him anymore right. but ryan adams oh like, right uh just a, I saw one, one of, of the, the worst Turn. shows i've ever seen really where he just was on he kept talking about like what a great night it was going to be he's like hasn't has a whole album he's recording he's going to play every song from it yeah and all he would do is he would talk for 10 minutes in between every show about what he was going to do that night. Yeah. And then he, he hardly played any songs and it was just like. I was really into him. And, um, and it, I mean, some of this sort of makes sense now because I saw him a couple of times back then. And he just seemed kind of like an asshole. Yeah. And then uh, when all this other Maybe stuff he came is. out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Who can tell? Proven to be. Um, I don't want to keep you too late. So. Maybe we should go here as long as you want. (laughs) Well, I do want to talk a little bit about Mr. Show before we get into the apartment because it was, uh, I pitched an apartment, um, sketch on Mr. Show. Oh, really? Yeah. We didn't, we never ended. I I don't think I ever wrote it even. Would it have been like one of the black and white type of things or, uh, we would have shot it in black and white if Uh we had ever, if I had ever written it. I don't think I wrote it. It was, we, I remember at the time, (sighs) I forget why it was in the news but the pope's apartment was in the news like the fact that he had an apartment i see where this is headed <laughs> and so i was like hey what if we did a sketch about right. the pope's apartment where all the bishops are like bringing in the little boys oh, to have God. sex with it? <laughs> and bob and dave were like write it up yeah and who know i mean it was one of those pitches where maybe, yeah. maybe it didn't have legs or whatever or i couldn't you know i did that show when i was very young and not that smart yeah how old were you then 27 Wow, that's crazy. And you came in not at the very beginning, right? No, well, not really. I mean, I was there. I was around from the very beginning. Actually, I the first time I ever did did comedy was the summer July of 95, and it was because um I was I was I, I'd written a lot, I was in theater mm-hmm. and I had written a lot of plays and I moved back here to LA and I was um uh, my friend and I had written this pilot which was like an sort of uh, trying to be a better 90210, mm-hmm. essentially, with, like, interesting scenes and funny right. scenes. It was <laughs> basically, when the OC got on the air, I was uh-huh. like, oh, that's sort of what I was going for. Oh, wow. Um, but, you know, it was okay, and I, you know, we showed it 
to some people and, and some people liked it, but you know, I didn't know how to break into the business or whatever. Right. But I remember I, I had a friend who moved down here that I was in a show with up in Sacramento who I showed it to and she was just like, she called me. I remember being in my apartment in Azusa and her calling me and going like, okay, I read your script. It's just so, it's bad. It's just so, it's not, I hate it. Oh no. And I was like, okay. She goes, but you're so funny. Like you're such a funny guy around, you know, when I hang out with you. Yeah. Have you ever tried doing comedy? Um, she goes, I have a roommate who's in, who is in comedy and, you know, like, and I had known that because I, a couple of times she'd invited me to some things and I remember I'd gone to a party and I talked to this guy for a while and he was like, oh, you're a writer. Oh, cool. What have you written? And, I know who and, that is. <laughs> yeah. And it was Bob Odenkirk and yeah. I talked to him for a while and he gave me his card and a flyer, a flyer for like a show that was coming. Oh, cool. Um, so she's like, why don't you do this show? My friends have this show um, at the comedy store. Why don't you do this show? And just, you know, I think you could be really funny if you tried comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, so her roommate whom I picked up at the airport, um, when she moved here to LA and drove to my friend's house was Karen Kilgariff. So that's how she, they were like friends from, uh, Sacramento. Uh And so that's how my friend knew all these comedians. Right. Right. So, the the person with the show was Marilyn Rice Cub um, oh, yeah. and CJ Arabia. They both did the show at the comedy store on Sunday nights called Windows 95. So I just tried it out. But weirdly enough, back to your original thing was um, she asked me to do it. And then so I was like, okay. And then that week I went to go see Bob and David's live show mm-hmm. um, because of that flyer that yeah. Bob had given me. Was this when they were like in a restaurant? Uh, they were at a place called the Upfront in Santa Monica, which was like a real theater. Okay, um, that you could rent out. I did some shows there too, but um, the the restaurant was a different um, place. Okay, which I ended up performing with them a lot, actually, at oh, that really? place. Yeah, and I saw Pulp uh, perform at that place oh, as wow. well too. Yeah, so uh, but I went to go see their show, um, which I think was called the Cross Odenkirk Problem mm-hmm. at the time. Um, but um, also all of HBO was in the audience and Bernie Brillstein was there and all oh, like, wow. and I knew who Bernie Brillstein was because I, I grew up fascinated with comedy yeah. and SNL and all and wanting to be on it and all yeah. that, but I just never knew how to do it. Um, Did you think that was something available to you though? No. Okay. I couldn't figure out how to do it. I remember, so, so I loved Letterman. Right. And that was my main love and I wanted to do something like Letterman. Yeah, same. Um, but then I also... Things, there wasn't a lot of, you know, this is pre-internet, so there wasn't a lot of, like, material you could read mm-hmm. about stuff. So, so I remember reading a book about stand-up comedy. <laughs> wow. You know, and it had, like, interviews with Jerry Seinfeld and Richard Lewis uh-huh. and people like that. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe I should do stand-up comedy. Uh-huh. So I tried it when I was 18. And I was doing essentially, like, Jerry Seinfeld-style bits, right. like, observational bits, yeah. you know, about things. Have you ever seen this? You uh-huh. know, that kind of stuff. But then I never did it again. Um, so I just kind of was like, I don't think I can do comedy. If I could ever audition for SNL, maybe I'd be good at it. Mm-hmm. But how do you even do that? I'd and And there was no UCB theater or anything like that in L.A., so... Um, the groundlings were there, but right. I, I went to go see their shows and I didn't like them all that much. And mm-hmm. I was like, I, I just don't even know how to do it. And then I saw Bob and David do that show and I was right. like, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. I know how to do it now. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that's stuff that I do around the house. Uh-huh. 
Um, I never knew you could do that as comedy. So were you doing character stuff just for fun? And it, it wasn't even character stuff. It was like just sort of like types, a type of humor mm-hmm. that I did not think could be popular. Yeah. Where that went further than other types of humor in a way, you know, the fact that they were cursing a lot during their, their sketches mm-hmm. was like sort of mind blowing, but just their subject matter. Yeah. And the way they approached the topics, I was like, I, I felt a real kinship too, because yeah. it was, it was stuff that, that me and my friend would do to make each other laugh and our friends laugh, mm-hmm. you know, around the house or around the restaurant we worked at. So I was like, Oh, well that's the type of stuff I'm interested in yeah. doing. So that combined with seeing an Andy Kaufman special that week, uh, like a documentary about him, I was yeah. like, oh, let's do like an Andy Kaufman meets Bob and David type thing. Yeah, yeah. Which I did at the comedy store. And, and you know, I, the people who were at this show were like Bob and David, mm-hmm. Janine Garofalo, Sarah Silverman, like yeah. all those types of people were there at Paul F. Tompkins. They mm-hmm. were there every week. And I just fell in, you know, the first time went so well. That that Mary Lynn and CJ were like, oh, come back in two weeks and do another thing. And yeah. I just like never stopped. That's you know? cool. Yeah, it was very. And Bob was there the second time that that my friend and I performed at it. And he was like, hey, um, I have the show. Uh, maybe you could write for it. That's spot on, man. That's so good. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah, that's, that's the other um, Scott. Yeah. Um, or the other Bob. Yeah. So it was just like one of these weird things. I, I was I was very fortunate in the sense of of first of all, I just think kind of you know, Mr. Show and it, it was a boys' club. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a there was a sketch about it being a boys' club, right? It, it really was in a way. Um, but Karen was writing for them, right? Or no? Karen never wrote, but um, uh, no, we never had a female writer. Sarah, oh, really? Sarah was the one who um, was offered, uh-huh. but she I feel she did that Dave Chappelle pop movie instead. Um, oh, right. I forgot about that. But yeah, it just it. So I was sort of fortunate in the sense of like, you know, mm-hmm. I was a white dude in L.A. And I was also fortunate in the sense of like, it just didn't feel like there was as much competition back then. Yeah. As there is now. Yeah. There's so many funny people in L.A. And, yeah. and they have a place to go to, mm-hmm. you know, with the UCB theater. And yeah. now it's like there's just too many funny people. You don't know how to. I feel like that's kind of the case. It's hard to even uh, parse it out now. Yeah. But back then I was 25 and Bob was like, oh, wow. Yeah, I see a kinship between our senses mm-hmm. of humor. And so he just really like adopted me and my friend in a way and, yeah. and was in our sketch shows. If I ever had a sketch I wanted him to do, he'd be uh-huh. like, yeah, okay. Um, and would come up and introduce them mm-hmm. if he felt like the crowd needed pumping up. He right. was like Bob Odenkirk at the, and this was pre, you know, Breaking Bad. This yeah. is before he became Bob Odenkirk. But sure. at the time around LA, it was like, he was quality, you yeah. know? And so for him to, to come up and introduce a show and, and mm-hmm. say that he endorsed it was, you know, a, a big deal. And, he, and so that's, you know, that's really, you know, how I got started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. 
But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. It was such a special time, um, just the collection of talent and everyone, it seems like, went on to do great things. And then the way he and David were together and just from the from Bob in the suit to Dave in the cargo shorts and the baseball cap, like the way they played off each other was just like I, I can't imagine. Like it's one of the great times in comedy, I think. Yeah, it was really crazy. And we all hung out together every night mm-hmm. um, and – you know, pre-cell phone, you had to... Real hangs. It was basically like you had to figure out where everyone was going uh-huh. that evening by a big phone chain. Right. You know, like who, you know... Whose house we're going to be at? Well, it wasn't even a house. It was like, what bar are you going to be at oh, tonight? okay. So, and that was always based around either a show that was happening, mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, there's an alternative show that, that just started in Santa Monica at this place. Right. So we're all going to watch the show and then we'll hang out at the bar afterwards. Yeah. Or if there was no show, it was just like, what bar are we going to be at tonight? Right. And so around two in the afternoon or so, everyone would start sort of that phone chain and uh-huh. start calling up and going, "Where have, <laughs> what have you heard? What have you heard? Yeah. Where are we going to hang out? And I mean, that was back when you could talk to your friend on the phone for an hour. I know. You know? Um, and so, yeah, it was really cool. And then we were just constantly in each other's shows. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like, if anyone said, hey, there's this fun thing you go, yeah, okay, let's, let's do it. If yeah. any of us had an idea, you go, okay, let's do it. And that is, that's sort of translated to now where I feel like all the people from that era, mm-hmm. I feel like I can kind of ask to do anything and, yeah. and they'll say yes. And I, I would say yes to them, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I know that if I call up Pat Oswald right. and say, Hey, can you do a part in this thing? Or can you, can you write me a blurb for this? Or can right. you be at this fundraiser or whatever? He'll say yes. Or Bob or any of those people, yeah. you know, it's just, it, it, it really seems like something where we would do anything for each other that's because really that's cool. what it was like back then. Yeah. We would do any of each other's shows. 
That's it's awesome. So fun. And yeah. everyone's just still uh, in touch and, and tight enough. I mean, there's always, it, it is interesting to me, the people who sort of fall away from it, mm-hmm. you know, um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, I wouldn't say that every single person who was ever involved, but right. the the whole Mr. Show bond is such that, you yeah. know, Tom Kenny, for instance, who I maybe will see once every two years, mm-hmm. anytime I see him, we got to stop and like, yeah. you know, have a true conversation for, for a half hour about right. what's going on because we have that, that Mr. Show bond. Yeah. You know? That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know. I mean, I was a kid in Georgia, so I didn't know. And I've talked about this on the show. I had no idea that that world was available to people. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that that could be a job. I didn't know that uh, I could have moved to L.A. after college and tried to do stuff. Surprisingly easy if you look at my life story. <laughs> you just show up to a bar and Bob offers you a job. That's great. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I had, I had no idea. I mean, everything worked out in the end uh, with my weird uh, yeah. route my life took. but. Uh, I always get jealous when I hear of people that had that experience of being here in their early 20s and sort of those salad days before it got too crowded. It is. I mean, yeah. But you hear I, – I read sometimes about people who view like the Earwolf, the the network that I started, mm-hmm. the podcast network I started, the Comedy Bang Bang is on – People view that in the same way, in a way. They mm-hmm. go like, oh, I, I just have, you know, it just seems like a magical place where everyone's hanging out together all the yeah. time. Um, I would say the people younger than I probably are uh-huh. hanging out together all the time, you know. Uh, but the romanticism right. that people have when they think about those types of things. As an outsider. As an outsider. Yeah. Some of it's true. Some of it isn't. But mm-hmm. um, for for me starting out, it it really was very romantic until kind of everyone started to fracture right in, in the late nineties. Yeah. It, it was just a special time that between that and like the state. Yeah. Um, it was just sort of the birth of a new movement. Uh, like the, this is not your, this is not your parents comedy. Yeah. Or not even your big brothers and your big sisters comedy. It, you know, and, and I think everyone was sort of, building on what had come before us, like Monty Python or the kids Mm -hmm. in the hall and stuff like that. I mean, you know, comedy bang, bang, the TV show was really my love letter to comedy Mm -hmm. in a way. Like every, every one of the 110 episodes we did, you can, I hope that people can tell, like, this is me saying comedy. I love you (laughs) from the people that I put in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I, I would, I would sit there and have kind of a checklist of like, okay, we've had three of the kids in the hall on. Can yeah. we get the other two? <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. We've had the, um, SCTV is the only, we only had one person from SCTV. I was so bummed oh, really? because everyone else turned us down. Uh, but, yeah. um, but Dave Thomas played my dad on it and, and was so great. But every uh-huh. other SCTV person was said no. But um, it was like that for me. It was just like, you know, I want, I want to share my love of this art form that I've I've loved ever since I was a kid and yeah. sneaking, you know, sneaking looks at SNL mm-hmm. late at night. I I had uh, to sneak it too. It was it was yeah. not allowed <laughs> through Monty Python when I was thirteen. Yeah, and, and um, you know, the kids in the hall and everything. Um, I, I I really. That's that's what Comedy Bang Bang, the TV show it was for me. It was, mm-hmm. you know, if you see Michael McKeon in it, it's because... Yeah, Mr. Mom. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Michael oh, no, McKeon. Yeah, 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 yeah not Michael, <laughs> Michael Keaton would have been great on it. I think he turned it down. But if you see Michael McKeon in it, yeah. it's... 
it's not because I'm like, uh, who's a good actor? Uh, Michael McKee. Yeah. It's because I fucking love Spinal Tap. Yeah. And, um, and he's only on it, I think, because of his comedy background. Right. And he, such a pleasure to work with. Like, I'd worked with him on Mr. Show. But Michael McKeon doesn't need to do comedy bang bang. Yeah. But he's doing it because of that bond that I think mm-hmm. and the chain of of respect that I think comedians have for what came before and what came what comes after. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's why when I'm asked to do comedy things like someone's podcast or whatever, mm-hmm. I usually try to do it because yeah. um it's just that that chain is very important to me. Yeah. Have you seen uh, Little Women, by the way? Yeah. I was, uh, Odenkirk is just one of those guys for me that <laughs> it's, well. it's, it's really hard for me to. Uh, I can't on Better Call Saul. <laughs> like, he's such a good actor on, uh, that on Better Call Saul, yeah. I never think about, oh, that's my friend that I've. Really? That I've worked with for years and uh-huh. years. He's. Never think about it, but on Little Women, it was the minute he walked in, my wife and I God. like burst out laughing. Yeah, like, I didn't know he was in it, and so the yeah, same thing happened. I'd to forgotten, me. and then suddenly he was like, "Hello!" I, <laughs> it turned into a bit all of a sudden. Hello, daughters. Yeah, <laughs> I was just like, I just started laughing, but he's, he's really reaction. good in it. But no, he and and he he did such a good job that I was able to forget that pretty quickly because he just sort of became this like kind of lovable dad. Yeah. But yeah, as soon as he walked on the screen, I was like, oh my God, I feel like I'm watching a sketch all of a sudden. I think because it's period. Because Nebraska- And he had those big mutton chops. Yeah, Nebraska, <laughs> I'm able to lose myself in. And yeah, yeah, John totally. Hamm is another guy who's a friend of mine who's like, I can lose myself in anything he's doing. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm thinking of the character, not him. Uh-huh. But that one was a tough one because it seemed like a Mr. Show sketch. <laughs> it totally did. <laughs> it was great, though. I, I, yeah, you, I love that movie. And, and it was a, a fairly crowded theater. And uh, I think I heard like seven or eight people kind of <laughs> chuckle good. under yeah. their breath. Like, yeah. All right. I get it. Um, well, thanks for indulging that, man. I yeah. appreciate it. Uh, maybe there'll be a, a Mr. Show movie one day, like the National Lampoon movie or something like that. I mean, we really wanted to do... When I first started working on Mr. Show, they had a script called, was it called Hooray for America? I think it might have been. Mm-hmm. Um, which, and I remember we would do read-throughs of it, and I was always like, man, it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. This It's so good. But then they were like, oh, no one will make this movie. It was all about Global Kim taking over the world or yeah. something. And so then when we set out to make the Mr. Show movie um, – I remember the first three days Bob was gone because he had some other job. Mm -hmm. And so it was me, Brian, and David were the only people there. And we wrote so many scenes for it. Uh And they were all really, really funny. And then Bob came back and was like, um, I don't, I don't think, uh, (laughs) these are too weird for... I don't think um, we can get this movie made. I think because of his experience with Hooray for America was too weird. So instead we went down this route of like trying to do a, he kept bringing up Adam Sandler, um, Happy Madison or uh, Happy Gilmore. Uh Like the audience needs to really relate to the character, (laughs) Um, which then what was supposed to be a fun six weeks of writing a movie turned into two years of hell for us all. Um, but at the same time, I don't think he was necessarily wrong about Mm -hmm. that. I think looking back, they never made Hooray for America. Um, I don't think the world was ready for a true Mr. Show movie at Mm -hmm. the time. And I think now 
uh, a place like Netflix would make something that was a little more like it. That said, if you go back and read the script to Hooray for America, because I think they published it, it's mm-hmm. not that good. But did I, you work on uh, uh, Run Ronnie Run? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So that was that was coming off of my season of Mister Show that I wrote on. Um, Bob and David said, hey, anyone who's a writer right now, uh-huh. do you want to write this movie with us? It'll just be a fun six-week thing, and then, yeah. and then we're done. And only five of us said yes, Bob, David, Brian, uh, myself, and BJ Porter. Mm-hmm. We were the only five who said, yeah, we want to do it. Everyone else was sick of it, so they left. Um, and it just was the worst experience. <laughs> I liked it. It's okay. It just is like watered down. Yeah, I mean, me. I don't know. I was such a fan of all all of that. I was just sort of in. Yeah, all I can see are the bad yeah, parts of it. Sure, there, there's interestingly enough, uh, Billy Wilder, whom we'll be talking about for mm-hmm. the apartment. I was I reread uh, conversations with Wilder last night, <clears throat> the Cameron Crowe book, where he yeah. interviews uh-huh. uh, uh, Billy Wilder, and Billy Wilder has the same kind of point of view of any film of his that is not well regarded where he mm-hmm. just doesn't even want to talk about it. He's just like, Oh yeah, that didn't work. Interesting. I mean, I could go on and on about it for hours, but it was just, it's such a bummer and yeah. every frame of it. I look at it as missed opportunities. Oh, uh, really? You know? yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we'll segue into the <laughs> apartment. <laughs> uh, 1960, of course, Billy Wilder, like you said, Jack Lemmon, Fred McMurray, um, and Shirley ad- McLean, adorable Shirley McLean, yeah. just, uh, just so, Spunky and cute and confident and smart as as Kublik. Yeah, I had never. I only knew her as an older woman. Yeah, same basically here. Basically, terms of endearment or whatever. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know anything about her. So yeah, the apartment was the first time I'd ever seen her uh, as you yeah. know in her prime in a way. I was uh-huh. just like, oh my god, she's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was great. How did this movie? Um, how did it come to you? Like, when did you first discover it? So. I think in 1988 or 89, either my first year or second year of college, I was in an acting class. Basically, my college experience was this. Um, I had, I think I had some morning classes that I had signed up for, like mm-hmm. 8 a.m. through noon. Um, and then I had an acting class at 2, and then I had my theater shows at night. Mm-hmm. But pretty quickly in... Uh, my schedule became uh, doing theater at night and drinking beer with my friends in their van until 5 a.m., <laughs> sleeping until noon, and then getting up to do my acting class. Yeah. And I basically f- flunked out of the other classes or canceled them or whatever. Uh-huh. So, But I was in this acting class um, with a – I think his name was Mark, was the teacher, and he mm-hmm. reminds me of Mark Marin. So the, oh, really? imagine Mark Maron. Uh-huh. He was kind of a Mark Maron type. <laughs> and um, he wanted me to do a monologue where I had to do a lot of action, where mm-hmm. I had to do a lot of um, prop business because that was whatever was happening that week. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I think, I think when you're an actor – like a young actor, you get used to doing stuff like speech competitions or whatever, where you're, or, or monologues where you're like talking to the audience. Mm-hmm. And, and he was like, well, that's not real acting. Like when you're on film, you're going to have to be doing a bunch of stuff, yeah. <laughs> you know, like prop business. Right. So, so he said, have you ever seen the apartment? 
I had no idea what it was. He's like, I'm going to give you a monologue from the apartment. I want you to be like cooking spaghetti while you're uh-huh. with a tennis racket while you right. do it. <laughs> so um, I don't know that I saw the movie before I did the monologue. I basically like got the action I was supposed to do uh-huh. and, and did the monologue. And I, I'm sure I sucked. I was terrible. Um but um, but I but that was around when I saw it for the first time. Yeah, so yeah. The, so so it came to me through there. And Jack Lemmon, another guy who I only knew as an old older actor, right? Um, immediately was like, oh man, he's amazing. Yeah, Sherman McLean, amazing. Uh, Fred McMurray, I had only known him through Flubber. Um, My three sons for me and yeah. Flubber. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just and I had never seen a movie like it mm-hmm. either that that ba- balanced the tones that it does in yeah. the way that it does. I I never really seen so it just it just became and I didn't really know Billy Wilder or anything like that. I just liked the apartment. Uh-huh. You know, that that was all I really knew. Yeah, I think my um entry point for Billy Wilder in this movie was uh was Cameron Crow cuz mm-hmm. I was such a fan of his earlier work and um Which ones? The first Love Say Anything, mm-hmm. Loved Singles. Um, I mean, singles was the confluence of of the music, and I still have never seen it. Oh, really? Yeah, and I, and I love say anything, and I love Jerry Maguire, but I I've never seen. Singles. Wow, that I've seems seen like little uh-huh. parts of it on cable every once in a while. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how it would age because I haven't seen it in a long time. But uh, yeah, singles say anything. I love Jerry Maguire. Um, loved Almost Famous. Uh, Didn't really like it for whatever reason. I, really, I, reading the book last night, I, he's. He's writing Almost Famous while he's writing that book because uh-huh. he keeps talking about his project that he's putting off writing Yeah, what, so he can write this book about Billy Wilder. Uh-huh. And I kept going like, oh, I wonder which movie it was. And for some reason, I thought it was Vanilla Sky or something. Oh, right. But then he talks about how it's autobiographical. And I was uh-huh. like, oh, this is Almost Famous. Well, and So it made me want to rewatch it. It's funny because the beginning of Jerry Maguire obviously is, is a complete ripoff of the beginning of the apartment right. with quoting the statistics about the size of the earth or the city or whatever. Right. And I always knew that, but I didn't, it didn't really hit me until I watched this last night again. Um, that the attempted suicide, the overdose scene is a straight up almost famous. Oh, because okay. the exact same thing happened. Kate Hudson took the overdose. They rushed in there. They put the tube down her throat and then oh, I don't remember. And then he, uh, Patrick, uh, Fugit is left to, um, sort of care for her not for two days, but he is then in the position that um, that Baxter was in hmm. of having this sort of caretaker relationship for, okay, for yeah. a moment. I, I saw it when it first came out. I've never seen it again, so I don't really remember. That's really interesting. Yeah, and, you know, it's not like Cameron Crowe. He's very much has said, you know, I've, oh, yeah. I've taken from or borrowed from Billy Wilder. So yeah. I don't think I, like, discovered something. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've not outed him. Right. But uh, it, it was when I was living uh, here— that Almost Famous came out, saw it at the Vista, read about Cameron Crowe telling the story of trying to get Billy Wilder to be in Jerry Maguire. He wanted him to be the sports agent. Yeah, that, the, the elder statesman. Yeah, the mentor figure who kind of comes in every once in a while and yeah. is talking to camera about... Which would have been fantastic. Yeah. Um, but uh, And he tells a story about bringing Tom Cruise in as the heavy hitter. Right. And I remember distinctly he said no. And he said, I could tell by the look on Tom's face that that is not a word that he hears very much. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He, he tried twice. He did it by himself. And then he brought Tom in the second time is like, I got to land this. Yeah. And Tom Cruise just gave him the whole Tom Cruise pitch. And, um, 
he was not interested, didn't, didn't know who Cameron Crowe is. And I think I loved like, that he said no, you know. He's just like, I'm not an actor. Get uh-huh. out of here. <laughs> but then to his credit, watched it and was like, oh, is that the part that I was supposed to do? And loved it. And oh, then, really? And then reached out to Cameron Crowe. was like, hey, I liked your movie. <laughs> oh, well, that's cool. And that's how the book came about is, is Cameron Crowe wrote an essay about that. Mm-hmm about the fact that he was trying to get Billy Wilder to do that part for Rolling Stone, I believe. Yeah, that's where I read it. Which Billy Wilder's um, people sort of saw and said, hey, maybe Uh you should do. And so that whole book, Conversations with Wilder, is um, Billy Wilder thought it was going to be for Rolling Stone, thought Uh it was going to be an article. He's like, where's your column? We'll just do this for your column. Yeah. And Cameron Crowe kept kind of going, I think this could be bigger. I think Uh it could be a book. He's like, no one wants to read this. Right. Um. But then after like the fourth interview kind of settles into it and likes Cameron Crowe so mm-hmm. much that it then becomes like a, a, a year long thing where they're buddies and, so cool. and they go have dinner a lot, like uh-huh. the, like Billy Wilder and his wife and wow. Cameron Crowe and his wife and, and it becomes like a real friendship, you know, it's That's a really amazing. good book. Yeah. That's so cool. Uh, I can't imagine, like I remember reading that he was in his nineties and he would still go to his office every day yeah. and I'm not sure what he was doing, but. He, well, uh, Cameron Crowe, like, puts in anything you would do. That's oh, really? what's cool about the book. He's like, in the middle of the interview, he goes, and then he gets a call <laughs> and uh-huh. then describes what the call is about. And wow. he's, he's just, like, taking calls where he's like, what? <laughs> no, I don't have the rights to it. <laughs> well, I don't know. Call Paramount. And he slams it down. He's like, I don't wow. know. Someone wants to, someone is asking me if Sunset Boulevard would be good set in the 90s. Oh, yeah. and, uh, and I don't care. Like, uh-huh. call up Paramount. I don't have the rights to this. <laughs> and then he complains about, like, the the, adapt- the Andrew Lloyd Webber adaptation. Uh-huh. He's like, ah, the set was too bad. Like, it's totally just wow. Kevin Crow puts in everything that happened, which is really interesting. That's amazing. Well, and I guess um, because he had had the experience of being a kid, ingratiating himself to these bands. Mm-hmm. He he must have a real skill for doing that. Probably, yeah. If he broke through Billy Wilder's, I wonder sort what of, that is about uh, about him. Like, is he just I don't know inquisitive and and comfortable in those situations, or is maybe? He, I mean, is it genuine? Is it something where he's like, you know, is it something that he feels yeah. like, oh, this is a thing I can do, or uh, I don't he's know? He's probably a great listener. Yeah, would be my guess, uh, because when you get in the rooms with the the bands and the Billy Wilders, they probably are. It's probably a pretty lopsided conversation. Probably, yeah. And you have to be good at just shutting the fuck up. I, yeah, probably. I mean, I do. I, I read the book last night, and yeah, I, I, I don't know that Cameron Crowe is ever like interjecting all that much and yeah. like offering his. It he eventually gets there. I will say the book. Most of the Billy Wilder stuff that you're interested in is mm-hmm. the first couple of interviews. It's uh, almost yeah. like Cameron Crowe is trying to get every question he's wanted to ask, yeah. and then the rest of the book is more like. Okay, let's do a deeper dive on this. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? It's a fascinating book, though. It's really, yeah, I'll it's have really to check that out. Yeah, uh, a friend of mine worked on uh, Elizabethtown and, and said like he's also a genuinely good guy. Oh, cool! And was great on set and very crew friendly and just a cool. nice guy. Yeah, which is never great. saw Elizabethtown. Uh, not great, hmm. uh, but my friend was a wardrobe supervisor who was from Elizabethtown and got to work in Elizabethtown on the E Town movie and got the key to the city. So it was kind of a cool big deal for her. Oh, wow, cool. And in fact, she did you say you worked on the Onion movie or no? A little bit. I think she worked on that. I was never on set or right. anything like that. So um, the the origin, and you probably know and this And by the stuff. way, if anyone's listening, we talked about the Onion movie beforehand. Oh, right. I don't watch any of the Onion movie and think any of it was attributed to me. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I worked on it after the fact when they were then when they wanted to film a brand new movie. Right. That maybe used some of the footage from that instead of releasing what they had. They, uh-huh. were, they were like, <laughs> so I wrote, I started writing a whole new movie. Right. And then it all got shut down. So please don't watch that movie and think I had anything to do with it. My instinct now, because I'm so binging on your show, is to say, well, wait a minute, is this an episode of Setting the Record Straight? <laughs> Thank you. I think it is. Um, so I'm sure you know the origin of the film, though. Uh, has a few different stories, but I think Billy Wilder said it was uh, a movie from director David Lean called it was Brief, Brief Encounter. En- yeah, yeah, Brief Encounter that had just a similar sort of. So he talks hook. about it in the book where he's basically. Because Cameron Crowe is trying to set the record straight. Mm-hmm. He's like, was it based on this person in Hollywood? Which right. Is, which is a rumor about a guy who, uh, whose mistress killed himself mm-hmm. in, in an apartment or something like that. Is it about this story? And he's like, no, I was just watching Brief Encounter one day. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene where these two, I think, married lovers uh, are meeting in France. And one of the guys, uh, the guy who's meeting this woman says, oh, this is like uh, a buddy of mine's apartment. Right. And um, Billy Wilder went, geez, I feel bad for the guy who's... Yeah. <laughs> apartment it is like essentially they're having sex in his apartment yeah like that's the story and he's got to come back and these people have just you know (laughs) had sex in his bed yeah and he he just he wrote that down in his book and it was something that he thought of for for many years um and and the code the sort of what what was permissible in movies he could never do that yeah. idea hey, until until 1960 when uh-huh. everything sort of relaxed and they he was finally able to do a movie about this sort of mature subject matter mm-hmm. which is is all about you know adultery and it's yeah. it's kind of like a 60s sex romp in a way yeah but serious yeah you i know? mean it's very racy for the time and i know there were stories of uh, fred mcmurray um, being accosted in the street and like literally getting hit with a purse. And, yeah. And people oh. saying like, how dare you? Yeah. I watch you in these Disney movies and how could you do that? <laughs> yeah. And Fred, Fred McMurray was another guy who was like, I can't do this movie. Yeah. Like, Billy, the whole book is filled with like people having heart attacks right before they film. That happened a lot on oh, these really? movies, like the fortune cookie and Peter Sellers had a heart attack in the middle of right. one, one of the films and had to drop out uh-huh. after he'd filmed for a week. Um, Charles Lawton, I think, also had like a heart attack right before. It's like it's because everyone was drinking and smoking, smoking all the. That's why I started thinking. I was like, God, everyone's fucking having a heart attack. Yeah, but um, Fred McMurray was a guy who was like, I'm not going to do this movie, and I think whoever was doing it dropped out. And uh, Billy oh, Wilder's like, Fred, come to and Fred McMurray. By the way, Double Indemnity. Yeah, he's so another Billy Wilder movie. He's so great in that. Yeah. And a very quotable movie that my friend and I were constantly, I still say things from it all the time. Uh-huh. Like, hmm, that tears it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but um, but uh, uh, one of the funniest stories that Billy Wilder tells about Fred McMurray from The Apartment is there's that scene where he's getting his shoes shined mm-hmm. and he's flipping a quarter uh, absentmindedly in uh-huh. front of the guy shining the shoes yeah. with his thumb flipping it in the air, mm-hmm. almost taunting him with it. Like, oh, yeah. you may or may not get right, this. Right. And then the guy finishes shining his shoes and Jack Lemmon comes into the frame and, and Fred McMurray flips him the quarter and goes, thanks a lot. And the shoeshine guy's like, oh, wow, thank you so much. Yeah. And he leaves. And for some reason, the quarter wasn't flipping right. Uh-huh. And Billy Wilder's saying, 
like Fred McMurray is a very cheap guy. Yeah. Okay. That's one thing you got to know about him. Oh, really? So, in real life? Yeah, in real life. Uh-huh. So he's like flipping this quarter and it won't flip right. And I come over to him and I say, all right, it's okay, Fred. We'll just swap in a 50 cent piece. And Fred goes, I would never tip him Fred 50 cents. I can't <laughs> act in this scene. <laughs> wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that's hysterical yeah <laughs> he's so good in this movie too um he's so funny in it yeah and uh just playing, a total slime ball yeah yeah playing a part because you know the whole setup it, it was there's so many kind of cool little twists and turns for a for a romantic comedy um and he you know the whole setup is that he has you think that he is gonna be the stand-up guy when in fact he's just after that key and, yeah. and there's that great scene with lemon where he's like, you know, trying to get the key from yeah, him and like, trying to get him <laughs> spelling to, it out, trying to get him to make the leap of, hey, I want the key to your apartment so, yeah. I, can ha- so I can cheat on my wife without having to say it, which right. would, which for a boss would be, it would implicate him. It would, well, it also would like lower his status yeah, if true. he had to, you know, so he's, he's playing very high status in it where he's just like, yeah. So you see, I want to give you these music man tickets. Uh-huh. <laughs> But I want to trade them. But I want to swap. I want to <laughs> yeah. make a swap. Yeah. And then Jack Lemmon's like, well, I, there's nothing I can swap you for. I mean, uh, I just want to go home and go to bed tonight. So uh, you just give the tickets to someone else. Yeah. And Fred McMurray's like, it also says on your reports from your coworkers that you're bright uh-huh. and that you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, right. like uh, can make, you know, uh-huh. can make the leap to yeah. a certain thing, you know. But um, yeah, it's 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 really interesting about this movie because it does start as like a, a kind of very comedy sex romp, uh-huh. um, and kind of broad, kind of broad, yeah. and and you know the the idea for it is is a great idea, which is basically what if that guy, what if this guy mm-hmm. who has this apartment. All of his bosses wanted to come in and cheat on their wives yeah. in his apartment. And so he climbs up the corporate ladder by giving them the key and and juggling them all in a very complicated schedule where right. he has to leave his apartment for hours yeah. in the rain and stuff. Such a great setup. It. It's a great setup. And it could have just been that. Mm-hmm. So it could have been like a Rock Hudson Doris Day style yeah. 60s sex romp with, uh-huh. Tony Cur- or, uh, with Tony. What's his name? Uh, Tony Curtis? Not Tony Curtis. Uh, 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 who am I thinking of? He would come in and sing on uh, Letterman all the time. Or no, you would come in with Mandy Patinkin. Okay. It'll come to me. <laughs> right. um, so it could have just been that. But then the part where it switches into drama is mm-hmm. really interesting, which is basically um, Jack Lemon gets everything that he wants with Fred McMurray, the slime ball, mm-hmm. saying like, hey, I'm going to give you a promotion if you give me your apartment. Right. And he goes, great. And I have these Music Man tickets that he swapped me for. I'm yeah. going to ask out the girl that I've always liked. Yeah. The elevator oper- operator. And she goes, oh, yeah, well, uh, I have an appointment, but I'll meet you. Uh, I'll meet you there. Yeah, she agrees I, to the date. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to do this. I have to do this thing first, mm-hmm. but I'll meet you there. At, I'll be there by 830. And yeah. you're just thinking, oh, great. Who, you know, and that's one thing that Billy Wilder says, by the way, is, is like, if you can disguise your plot points. Mm-hmm. In the movie, that's that's the sign of how well, uh, how good of a writer you are. Yeah. Is how how well you're able to disguise your important plot points. Yeah. So she kind of offhandedly says something like, "Oh, I have to meet someone, but mm-hmm. I'll meet I'll meet you there at eight 30. So when it then becomes not Jack Lemon's POV, mm-hmm. and it becomes her POV, where you follow her to where she's meeting, mm-hmm. and she's meeting Fred McMurray. Yeah. 
and she's basically going to have sex in Jack Lemmon's apartment. Yeah, man, brilliant. That, that's where it becomes that because it could have the premise could have sustained itself where it was just a how to succeed in business type. Yeah, totally. Type movie, and that's where it deepens and becomes. Mm-hmm. It's such a great twist and such a, but a twist that then means this movie is going to have to be serious at yeah. parts because that's a, it's not treated in this light way of like, oh my gosh, you know, there's going to be slamming doors and three right. companies types of stuff. It's treated as like, she's upset, just her attitude at the beginning of that, she's upset that he's been fucking around and stringing her along. Because she's really in love with him, which she, I think yes. is key to making this work. Exactly. She's in love with Fred McMurray mm-hmm. and Fred McMurray is stringing her along yeah. and basically, uh, you know, wants to be married and just wants to have sex with someone. Right. And it's it just automatically deepens this movie and turns it now from a lighthearted thing mm-hmm. into a really deep moving, affecting movie. Yeah. And it's, it's one of my favorite things in movies where um, – and as a writer, it's so it's such a tricky thing on when to parse out information to the audience and when to parse it out to the actual characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's one of my favorite things when the audience is in on something that that your protagonist doesn't quite know yet, and it's about how he learns that stuff. Yeah, because when you're watching the apartment, you know, oh shit, like Kublik is is dating uh, or, or seeing uh, uh, Sheldrake, but the poor schlub. The poor schnook uh, <laughs> Baxter doesn't know this yet. Yeah. So when are we going to find this out? When's the shoe going to drop? Yeah. yeah. And when is she going to find out? Uh, that the apartment that she's boning in is, is his. his. And when she's going to find out that she is just one in a long line, uh, which she finds out at the Christmas, the, the greatest yeah. office Christmas party <laughs> of all time. <laughs> it really makes you want to move to New York and work in an office. In 1960. In 1960. Like the, fantastic. The, the scenes that Billy Wilder stages with a lot of people in them, yeah. I love those scenes. Yeah, they look great. A lot of the movie is just two people talking, mm-hmm. but all those scenes in the bars on New Year's yeah. and all that, they're, they just make New York seem so alive yeah. and so much fun to be in. Well, in the huge then. office with, uh, and I think he, he used forced perspective. Yeah, with kids in the back. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. just crazy. Yeah. Uh, and then, like you said, all the bar scenes and the, and the party scene, there was something about putting 100 people in a shot that you just kind of don't see as much of anymore. Yeah, exactly. Well, extras or background artists, they're they're so expensive. And it really is a choice that you have to make. And and it's it's a great choice, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it really makes it feel like a very lived-in... Everything about the movie makes... I mean, I they say his address in the movie, so I oh, like immediately. Oh, that's right. I went on Google oh, wow. what Maps, is it? and it's like uh, it's uh, some. I can't remember ex- the exact address, but it's fifty-seven. It's the Upper West Side, uh-huh. right? So it's a. And he says, "I'm a block away from uh, Central Park." Right. And so I knew sort of where it was at, but uh-huh. then in the middle of the movie, they say the actual because Fred McMurray says it to the taxi driver. Oh, that's Take right. Take me to like fifty-seven, fifty-seven, yeah. or whatever. So I looked it up, and the that apartment is not there. But it's oh, like no. it just really gives you a great sense of place. Yeah. It, well, and the name of the movie is the apartment. It was. Um, it's and, not the two lovers. Who yeah, are the, yeah. There's something to that. Uh, the apartment is like a, a little character. Yeah, and I know they took great pains to make it a little more um, sort of shabby and lived in than movies did at the time. Yeah, movies at the time there were Billy Wilder was saying like you know everyone's 
I, he, he wasn't saying it like this, but in my opinion, everyone's houses and movies were sort of aspirational. Mm. People would go to see movies because they wanted to see uh, someone living a better right. life than they had, especially in the in the 30s. And, and yeah. um, you know, which is why these everyone's house were these grand sets. Yeah. You know what I mean? And a movie like Philadelphia Story and, right. and stuff like that. They had everyone's houses were big. Yeah. And they had staff and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And and. Um, Billy Wilder wanted this to be like a bachelor pad and uh-huh. for it to be realistic. And so it was kind of shabby. It was small. I mean, it's amazing for dudes like us. Oh, yeah. It's like this apartment <laughs> with a fireplace. And- <laughs> like a block from Central Park yeah. on the Upper West Side. I mean, it was like, uh-huh. you know, it's pretty. But for whatever reason, in the, in the 60s, it was right. considered a little shabby. Yeah. But um, there's even a poster on the wall. That Cameron Crowe and he talk about where where Cameron Crowe is like, what is that poster that's like, it's over by his fireplace, uh-huh. I think. And Billy Wilder goes, oh, it's a print from the, the museum. Oh. He goes, basically, in my mind, Jack Lemmon would leave his apartment and mm-hmm. have to walk around the city all the time. So he would spend a lot of times in museums. Oh, yeah. So he bought a, a print from the museum. But uh-huh. because he's a bachelor, he doesn't have anyone to say like, hey, that would look better in a frame. Right. You know, so it's just like tacked onto the wall. You yeah, know, it's yeah. like a touch of glass, essentially. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the tone of it, like you were talking about, is such a, a magic trick because it's it borders on that zany kind of thing at the time, especially early on with uh, – the recurring thing of, of the doctor and the wife is the neighbor. Yeah, every who, time you see the doctor sees another girl gr- go into yeah. his apartment, he's like, honey! Uh-huh. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like kind of shticky in a way. And it and it would have been great as just that, but but man, the, the moment that turn happens, yeah. then, you know, we're de- then suddenly we're in a movie about suicide mm-hmm. that has a very lengthy... Uh, scene in where a doctor is basically trying to get Shirley MacLaine yeah. to regurgitate the pills that she's uh-huh. taken and slapping her in the face. Just and it's, slapping the shit out of it's her. like in real time, yeah. essentially just trying to get, you know, uh-huh. they don't, they, he doesn't slap her once and then it cuts, it fades. And she's like, I feel afterwards. so much better. Yeah. No, it, it like is in real time of basically like she could go. Yeah. Um, and and I just had never seen a movie with straddling those tones, really, other than maybe um, a, a movie that I talked about on a different movie podcast, um, Something Wild. Uh-huh. Um, oh, yeah. That was great. Yeah. You know, that's kind of straddled the drama and comedy uh-huh. tones. Um, is that Jonathan Demi? Demi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I talked about it on Blank Check, which is um, dealing with Jonathan right. Demi's. Uh, uh, filmography. Uh-huh. Um, one of, uh, th- and that I saw in 86 and that was one of my favorite movies at the time because of that tone. And yeah. so when I saw The Apartment, I was like, oh, wow, this is doing the same kind of thing. Um, and and not a lot of movies do that. Well, and especially in 1960, uh, yeah. tonally, I'm sure it was really divisive back then. Well, yeah, Billy Wilder was saying that that he got a lot of pushback and really? and a, a lot of the critics one of them I think famously called it a dirty movie. And, oh wow. And but um yeah, I mean it's it just was dealing with more adult subject matter, adultery yeah. and and um but but aside from that is also just a movie about you know how far you want to go and trying to succeed in life and uh-huh. climb up the corporate ladder and um which he was, he didn't. Really, I get the sense he didn't. I think he does tell the story of how it started, and he wasn't uh, seeking that out. 
he didn't offer up his apartment initially, right? Like, was yeah, it the he, first one? No, uh, no, the first one was one of his bosses uh, needed to borrow his apartment for some innocuous yeah, reason. that's right. Um, which I think the boss was lying to him about why he needed it or whatever. Right. And then all of it, and then he couldn't say no after that because if you say yes to one guy, right. you, your other boss says, hey, I need it. Yeah. And it just became a thing for him. Well, yeah, and then it's it's the outskirts of this movie that play sort of the zaniness of the time. It's always rooted in these in these great scenes that are pretty realistic and believable between uh two people like you were saying, but then on the outside like when the when the bosses would bring in the ladies, it was always <laughs> kind of zany and wacky and it's very 60s in a way with oh, totally. like all these like swinging dames and Fred McMurray has all this bebop lingo that he's constantly saying. He's yeah, like, yeah. you dig? And, uh-huh. <laughs> and at one point he goes, ain't that a kick in the head? And I was like, "Is did the song come first or did? Oh, or, I don't know. So I looked it up uh-huh. and they came out at the same time. The Dean Martin song, uh-huh. ain't that a kick in the head and the apartment. They both came out in 60, like within months of each oh, other. Wow. But ain't that a kick in the head was was written for the movie Ocean's Eleven, uh-huh. which Billy Wilder did work on the script for. Oh, interesting. Which Ocean's Eleven is a terrible movie, but he talks about it in the book about um, how Frank Sinatra gave him a present. And mm-hmm. he's like, oh, I never liked Frank Sinatra. And Cameron Crowe goes, well, why did he give you a present? He's like, oh, I just did some punch-up work on Ocean's Eleven. Right. So I <laughs> I wonder if, like, Billy Wilder was, like, included, ain't that a kick in the head? Yeah. It, uh, that was something that he said or something, which Dean Martin then turned uh-huh. into a song. Interesting. Billy Wilder also loved Dean Martin and thought he was the funniest guy in the world. Well, because Dean Martin could have very well been the Sheldrake character. Yeah, and he's in uh, Billy Wilder's next movie, One, Two, Three. Oh, and I haven't seen that. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I have it at home, but I haven't watched it yet. Well, and they brought back the kick in the head line again later in the movie. I think Lemon references it somehow. Oh, I don't remember Or maybe that. it was Shirley MacLaine, something about having been kicked in the head. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they do that a few times. Well, it's really interesting because um, just reading Billy Wilder talk about script writing— um, it's very, as someone who's like just about to start to write another script, mm-hmm. it's very inspiring. And it's also, I watched this movie last night and I was uh, rewatched it and I was like, it's also very intimidating yeah. because he just is such an expert at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two things he, he talked about are, uh, if you, if the stuff you do in the first act isn't paid off in your third act, mm-hmm. then you're not succeeding. Right. right. And he's he is paying off so many things he's not only paying off lines he's paying off emotional themes mm-hmm. he's paying off scenes he like basically the whole third act like the last 20 lines of the movie are payoffs yeah. for something he's set up so expertly from the and and stuff that's so unexpected mm-hmm. from like um, well, him donating his body to science as a great lover, mm-hmm. he brings that back when he takes the, the bar lady back. Right. Because he starts touting myself. You know, they say I should donate my body right. to science. And the last few lines are, are like um, Shirley MacLaine innocuously is just talking about her life in the middle of the movie and how mm-hmm. she got to where she's got is saying like, well, I wanted to be a, uh, I think a stenographer, but I couldn't mm-hmm. spell. Right. You know, and one of her last lines to Fred McMurray is him going like, what's wrong with you? And her going, well, I'd spell it out for you, but I can't spell. Yeah. You know, and, and Jack Lemon, when he's talking to Shirley, Shirley MacLaine about her suicide attempt, talks uh-huh. about his own suicide attempt. Yeah, it gets heavy. And, and how he accidentally shot himself in the knee instead uh-huh. of shooting himself in the head. Yeah. 
And, but he talks about like the knee took me six months to get over, but the girl I was over in three weeks. Yeah. And he goes, you know, and he, and he starts, it, it's such an interesting comment on how someone you feel so close to for a while and mm-hmm. can be in love with a year later, you can not even ever think of them anymore. And he yeah. says, he says like, I still hear from her every Christmas, she sends me a fruitcake. Right. And then they go, hey, let's have the fruitcake tonight. And you think it's just like, oh, wow, that's an interesting comment on life. Yeah. And, and Shirley MacLaine, one of her last lines uh-huh. is, he says, well, what about Fred McMurray? And she goes, I'll send him a fruitcake every year. Yeah. You know, it's just like he's constantly yeah. paying off everything that he set up. He The gun that uh-huh. the, that he talks about, he pays it off in the last scene. Yep. Um, With the champagne bottle that clearly sounded like a real gun. (laughs) Right, yeah. Um, But it's just like such an an expert screenwriter Mm -hmm. move to be like – and and I know that sometimes when you see a movie – you can roll your eyes at, at those kind of payoffs of yeah. like callbacks, that, you yep. know, where like someone's calling back someone. But that, but Billy Wilder and what he said about it is, if you can disguise it, then they're not true right. callbacks. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you if the the thing that that irritates people about those types of callbacks is when they're so important in the uh-huh. first act, and then obviously they're going to be called back in the third act. Yeah. You know what I mean? But yeah, if yeah. you can disguise it where it's just like character and mm-hmm. you're. You're not even thinking that that's important, and then suddenly it gets called back. It's yeah. really, really powerful. Yeah, you can't call too much attention to it. Um, I, I think like writer types will notice that stuff, but an audience at large just knows that it feels good and right. feels right. And I'm a writer type, and the fruitcake one, I didn't even remember it from all my previous rewatching. Oh, so really? I was just like, fuck. Yeah, it's Billy all Wilder and IAL <laughs> Diamond. That's his right. co-writer. Uh-huh. These two are. Fucking so good at it. Yeah. It's crazy. And then another thing on the callbacks, because at the very end of the book, there's like sort of uh, a, a bunch of random things mm-hmm. that Cameron Crowe includes, like Billy Wilder's top 10 tips for screenwriters uh-huh. and stuff. But he also includes this speech that he wrote for um, Gary Cooper uh-huh. um, for uh, uh, like at a live event to to accept an award. Mm-hmm. Right. And Gary Cooper, I guess, like did a lot of Westerns, I think, or um, so. So but and wasn't used to talking all that much. So Billy Wilder writes him this acceptance speech and he gets up in the first the first line is a joke. And he goes, well, I bet you all thought that I was going to get up here and have nothing to say except yup. Uh And everyone laughs. (laughs) And then he goes through and thanks a bunch of people and all this kind of stuff and has several other funny lines. And then the last line is he goes. And if you ask me if I've had a wonderful life where I've just worked with the most amazing people, I guess all I would have to say is, yup. Yep. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, fuck. And I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. I'm just like, God damn it. He's like, yeah. he, he's, he's good at disguising something as innocuous when you first hear it. Mm-hmm. And then just, you know, it makes the payoff just really powerful. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. 
But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And and there's so many great little lines. Um, a lot of them are Shirley MacLaine's, but they it doesn't feel like super scripty of the day stuff. Um, like she has the one uh, scene where where I think she first meets um, Fred McMurray at the Chinese restaurant, and he goes, "I see you cut your hair. You know I like it better long." She goes, "I know. You want me to? Uh, do you want me to leave you a lock to carry in your wallet?" <laughs> yeah. And it, and that line and the one about uh, at the end where she says, "Then you end up with egg foo young on your face." Right. Like those are great fucking lines. I mean, but they, they don't yeah. feel like uh, like eye rolly sort of clever lines. Yeah. It. He talks about how every scene and every line almost should be something you haven't seen before. Yeah. Which the whole movie just feels like. How 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 do we execute this in a way that we have we've never seen it on screen before? Uh-huh. Not only this scene, this joke, this line of dialogue. You know, like we shouldn't be going to movies and watching stuff that was in some other movie. You right. Know? And and it's hard because when you're a writer, you're like you're you're out there supposedly documenting life, but mm-hmm. but as a writer, you're also kind of an introspective kind of person who's not experiencing a lot, you know, and yeah. a lot of comedy, this is a problem in comedy scripts that you read is you, I read a lot of comedy scripts and they're, and you can tell they're all written by like 26 year olds who have never done anything or never, right. never experienced any, any emotional resonance uh-huh. in life. They're all people <laughs> who have like watched a lot of the Simpsons, Oh God, you know? Uh-huh. And so, um, I don't know. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, he, it, they really had a, and you know, we're not talking about IAL Diamond a lot, but um, right, um, you know, obviously Billy Wilder's best movies, I think, were written with him, mm-hmm. so uh, or or most of his best. So, but yeah, I mean, it's it's just the, I will say, like the craft involved in this movie is a lot of what I respond to. Yeah, uh, 
the emotional themes and stuff, that's very important for Billy Wilder. Mm -hmm. Um, He talks about how you can't even start writing until you know what your theme of the movie is, you know, which which is something that that in stuff that we produce, we talk a lot about, um, Mm -hmm. which a lot of comedians don't think about. But but for this movie... I think I I I respond to it in tonally and I respond to it in terms of craft and just how incredibly well crafted it is. Maybe a little more than the emotional resonance of mm-hmm. it, you know? Like I I I I love the end and it's not too sweet. It's it's the combination as they talk about in the movie the sweet and sour, yeah, yeah. which they talk about in the in the Chinese restaurant, uh-huh, you know, yeah. which is a a metatextual commentary on the movie itself yeah, basically, absolutely. like the sweet and the sour. Uh-huh. Um, because it doesn't end with them kissing. Right. It, Billy Wilder said he didn't think that Jack Lemmon could even pull that off. Yeah. Like as a romantic lead, you uh-huh. know, like suddenly taking her in his arms and kissing her. Yeah. So it ends with her basically saying, shut up and deal. Just and one of the you, great moments. You, and you know, it's great. And, and Billy Wilder goes, would they still be together at, you know, like six months later? I don't yeah, even know. I don't either. I don't even know, but it's, it's more of a personal achievement for them both more than two people found each other. Like these are two people who have not had any romantic connection the entire movie. So to have them suddenly kiss would feel weird. Yeah. I think it would have been the wrong move uh, because she has to go from being legit in love with, with Shell Drake being a fractured person. They'd spend, you know, the right amount of time on that, her backstory Mm -hmm. uh, to falling in or, I don't even think falling in love with with uh, Baxter at the end, but the the hope to of have falling her fall in love. in love would just seem weird yeah. because it would seem like, well, wait a minute, you were just in love with with Sheldrake. Uh-huh. You can't suddenly right. do a switch. But what's great about it is, is she suddenly sees she sees a person, a like minded soul mm-hmm. that has turned his back on. Uh, and and found the strength to be his own person. And right. that's what she does as well. Right. And so do they, are they together? Do they end up, you know, kissing mm-hmm. ever? Who knows? Right. It's not about that, really. No, I don't think it matters. Yeah. Um, he gets to profess his love, which felt real. Because mm-hmm. uh, he was. Yeah, it yeah. felt like the right move. But she just, if she was to say, yeah, I'm in love with you too, stupid, or whatever, yeah. it, would ju- it just wouldn't feel right. Yeah. Yeah, and and the way they play out that whole end sequence with her learning about um, when Fred when uh, Sheldrake's telling her, you know, and he said, you know, especially with Kublik, you can't use that apartment, right? And then she runs down the street, and all the anxiety is playing, and, and it's the it's basically what uh, Rob Reiner ripped off for when in Harry Met Sally. Sally, yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone ripped it off because it's the yeah. best, but it's very. Uh, I mean, now it feels like a trope. All this stuff. Um, but I don't know had had that been done before in 1960. I don't know. I you know I think Billy Wilder talked about the champagne cork mm-hmm. and how that was ripped off from a previous movie of his as a gun uh, as a gun thing. Uh-huh. Uh, and so he sort of I think Cameron Crowe brings it up and he's sort of like eh, yeah you know right <laughs> he's very just like eh, eh. Yeah. yeah, we we shot her. There's no. He said there's no special lighting or whatever. Cameron Crowe's like, how did you get her to look so like magical? Yeah. And he goes, I don't know. We just shot it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she just looked that way. Yeah, exactly. It's such a great ending. It's so perfect because it it manages to balance like the whole rest of the movie um, with the sweet and the sour. It's it's not overly sweet or sentimental, but just enough mm-hmm. to like leave you feeling hopeful and smiling. 
Whereas I was watching like the fortune cookie, which I'd never seen. So I put that on today, which is Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau in 68. Mm -hmm. And that so far, like I'm 45 minutes into it and it's just the sour. Oh, really? You know, I don't know. So I wasn't all that into it, but I haven't seen that one. It is an interesting balance. You know, not all of Wilder's films are great. And I think he talks about Irma LaDuce, which uh-huh. was uh, the reunite, reunited Lemon and McLean right. Wilder team. And he's just like, eh, didn't work. It's terrible. Yeah. Jack Lemon was so good, though. Yeah. Uh, Days of Wine and Roses. And, like, he had such a range. Yeah. Uh, he, he was just one of the greats. Some great physical comedy in it. Yeah. He goes a little broad. Um, like, the he, stuff with the bowler hat is just so cute and funny yeah the uh the the nasal spray squirt <laughs> yeah. is so funny and that was that was uh improv i guess from jack lemon oh really yeah and that was one of the few times wilder let him improv i think and one of the few kind of sort of broad slapsticky things yeah like that overt but for some reason it's, it, it really works it really, it's really does. good i feel like i've tried to rip it off a few times oh really um and then he squirts the flower too at a certain point yeah which is kind of fun wilder also said that lemon would come to set having like read through the pages with his wife the previous night and go like ah, i was uh uh talking to my wife and uh we had this idea we just thought it would be <laughs> it would be like better if we did this 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 and wilder would go like nah and Lemon would go, that's what I was saying. It's a terrible idea. And he would never bring it up again. Right. And Wilder was like, that was what was so great about him is he never, he wasn't like an actor who felt like he needed to, to defend his ideas yeah. and make sure they got in the script or whatever. Uh-huh. If if I didn't like it, he would just. Just roll with it. Yeah, yeah. Which is so funny. But speaking of ripping things off, there there's one scene that I have ripped off several times mm-hmm. and in scripts. And I. It ended up being in the Ferns movie that I just directed. So, Which I just saw a few weeks ago. Okay, so the end with Fred McMurray, the final uh, Jack Lemon Fred McMurray scene, mm-hmm. um, where um, Fred McMurray says, like, hey, I'm taking Shirley MacLaine to your apartment tonight to have sex. Right. And if you don't like it, then, you know, you're out of a job, mm-hmm. essentially. Um so Wilder uh, and I.L. Diamond very early in the movie set this up with uh, Ray Walston. Mm, who was great in this. Who's really great. And super broad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but very early in the movie, when it still is like a light comedy, um, Ray Walston says, hey, uh, Jack, Jack Lemon calls up Ray Walston and says, hey, you were supposed to leave the key under the mat to my apartment. Mm-hmm. And Ray Walston goes, didn't I? He goes, no, the key, you left a key, but it's not the key that works. Right, the executive washroom. And he goes, oh, I should have left, oh, I, I must have left the executive washroom uh-huh. key. Huh. And that's just like, you view it as a viewer as, um, oh, that's a funny complication, but mm-hmm. it's not important, right? So then in the final Fred McMurray scene, Fred McMurray says to him, hey, you need to give me that key mm-hmm. or else you're out of a job. Yeah. And he has mentioned like, hey, what do you, what do you think of the executive washroom in your right. new office? And just casually mentions it. Uh-huh. As, and you think it's as a viewer again, you're just like, oh, yeah, these are all the perks that he gets. Yeah. And Jack Lemon wrestles with, with this decision because mm-hmm. he's in love with Shirley MacLaine and then, you know, pushes the key across to Fred McMurray and gives up. Yeah. We think. And then goes into his office and Fred McMurray has won. Uh-huh. And we think, man, that sucks that Jack Lemmon didn't stand up for himself. But I understand he'd lose his job. Yeah. 
He Jack London goes into his office. He's tidying up. Fred McMurray comes in and says, hey, this is the key to the executive washroom. And Jack Lemon goes, yeah, I'm not going to be needing it anymore because you can take this job and shove it. Yeah. You know, and it's such an amazing, uh, not only finally calling back this stuff that was planted in the first act, mm-hmm. but it is one of the great like fake outs uh, to me in, in yeah, movies totally. of a character you think is doing the wrong thing mm-hmm. and in, he's actually doing the right thing. Yeah. So I've, I, I try to put it. I try to rip it off in almost every script I write. <laughs> really? And and so when we were making the Ferns movie, um, we ended up having one last final day right before it came out to shoot a totally new ending uh-huh. um, a- along with a bunch of other scenes So um, that we just needed to get. So um, I – like two days before shooting, I was basically – had worked out with the studio what scene they would agree to uh-huh. in broad strokes of like, okay, so Zach – if you haven't seen the Ferns movie, who cares? Uh, this probably won't spoil it for you, but uh, uh, who cares about the plot? But it's uh, Zach basically has sold out in Hollywood and um, has is now doing cheesy talk show interviews like right. you see Fallon do or whatever. Yeah, and has left um, his team behind. And his team says, hey, this isn't you. Come on back to North Carolina mm-hmm. and, and go back to doing the show the way it should be done. Yeah, And... He goes, you really want me to give up on all my dreams? And meanwhile, the network executive is over here saying, Zach, we need to do promos. Right, right. And they say, come on, come on back with us. And he he just looks at them, shakes his head and and walks and follows the lady into the studio. Uh And then it cuts to his crew lonely going back to North Carolina. And he suddenly appears and he's like, where are you going? I just went back to get my ferns. Right. <laughs> he's, he's like, you think just because I, I didn't answer you and I silently walked into the studio without telling you what I was doing, I wasn't coming with you guys. Of course I'm coming with you guys. And that is a direct rip off of that scene in the apartment. Oh just, man. So great. Yeah. Uh, are you going to keep trying to do that? Yeah. Or, if or did I can, that satisfy yeah. your, uh, well, it's, it's such a good, it's such a good move. It's such yeah. a good screenwriting move. If I it can is. do it, it, then I can. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, all right, man. You got anything else? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, it's just, it's, it's great. Yeah. Watch it. Enjoy it. It's kind of a perfect movie. Yeah. Um, I guess the one thing I did want to mention was the other thing that they, uh, just as writer wise, um, well, Writer wise, that thing that he kept doing with <laughs> oh yes, using okay. wise on the end of something else. So, so this is something interesting that you might not know, but so a lot of the the sophisticated characters who are Jack Lemmon's bosses keep mm-hmm. saying um, something wise. They right. keep ad- adding wise to to each of their things. So like so apartment wise, how yeah. are we? You know, and it's it's meant to like sort of imply a. a uh, sophistication or yeah. a, a, a fast talking type of guy mm-hmm. that Jack Lemon wants to emulate, and he starts sort of talking that way. Yeah. Which then, of course, they pay off at right. the very end with Shirley MacLaine saying, "I guess that's how it crumbles, cookie wise." <laughs> you know, so great. Which is her finally like telling Fred McMurray, uh-huh. "I'm not with you anymore. I'm now thinking of of Cece Baxter." Jack yeah, Lennon. yeah. It's so great. It pays off. Fantastic. But the very last. Uh, if you read the script, uh-huh. the very last line is not shut up and deal. Um, there's a, a scene description uh-huh. line that says, and that's all there is story-wise. Wow. <laughs> Fuck, that's great. <laughs> it's incredible. 
Yeah, and, and so that's just for the actors. And that's just for anyone reading the script. Yeah, that's how good they were. They were putting wow. in jokes in their that is amazing in their descriptions. That is so cool. Yeah, I got to read that book. Yeah, it's great. All right, thanks, man. This was a big treat for me. I thanks. appreciate you taking the appreciate time. Appreciate you having me on. Love talking about movies. Awesome. Thanks. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. That was so much fun. I had to kick the dust off a little bit. It's been a while since I've done one of these. Uh, it was great. He was a, a good dude and uh, so generous with his time. Um, it was so fun to talk to someone uh, that kind of came into the podcast scene along the same uh, time that we did with Stuff You Should Know. Um, even though his backstory pre-podcasting is far, far different from mine, uh, he was a kindred spirit and a great guy, and I appreciate him making all this time for me. Um, really cool to hear him uh, talk about the apartment and the fact that he, he watched it the night before and read up on the Billy Wilder stuff. It, it's always appreciated when a guest really takes their time to, to come in well-armed, and he certainly was. So thanks to Scott. Uh, thanks to you guys for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Go out and see the apartment if you haven't. Movie Crush is produced, edited, and engineered by Ramsey Yunt here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.